and happy end of July, which is hard to believe. I had run a poll for this bonus episode on Patreon, and quite a few of you voted, so thank you. And the result that won handily was going back through the deleted scenes from the 97 movie, talking about their accuracy a little bit. I was already going to do that, and I, you know, obviously had no problem with that. It's not really even quote-unquote work to go back through those deleted scenes and write down all my thoughts. It's a pure joy. I mean, none of this is work. It's all all pure joy. But uh, so I was already excited to do that. And then the passing of David Warner a few days ago, and he was the actor who played Spicer Lovejoy, Cal's valet, really made me think what there's no no more perfect time to do it than now because he does pop up in the deleted scenes. And I want to talk about him a little bit and his character a little bit. And also just, you know, what a great time to return to the 97 movie for an episode as we lose one of the main cast members. It is heartbreakingly sad to imagine him gone. He lives in my mind as Spicer Lovejoy, although I know he has a very, very, very long resume, a very well-respected actor. And I've messaged with a few of you over the last few days about some of his other roles. I I highly encourage you to just look him up on IMDb, maybe for fun, you know, go watch another one of his films. He was in another Titanic uh, movie. It was a mini series called SOS Titanic from years and years ago. He played Lawrence Beasley. I admittedly have never watched it, and I will be watching it as part of my Titanic on film series returning in the fall. So I'm looking forward to that, and I'll honor him again then. But yeah, R.I.P. Spicer Lovejoy, R.I.P. David Warner. Uh, Billy Zane did a wonderful remembrance post about him on Instagram. You should check that out. I want to just go through all the deleted scenes. <laughs> uh, this is a great topic for me to do. Right now my uh, brain is fried from planning some travel and just from uh, summer at home with the kiddos. And I don't think my brain is fully functioning. So this is a great episode for me to do because talking about the 97 film is like getting on a bike for me and I can always do it. But what's what's interesting is I hadn't watched the deleted scenes in at least a couple of years, if not more. So I sort of rediscovered them. A few of them I realized I'd never seen, which is sort of insane for me. And I had some new thoughts about them that I want to share. So I'm excited. So we start with Cal and Rose. And, and let me just say, the deleted scenes are on the DVD editions. Uh, they're also on YouTube, so not hard to find. And most of them are on YouTube or in a compilation that are in order. But I will say that the alternate ending, which we'll talk about, and then the long chase scene with Spicer Lovejoy, which we'll talk about, and David Warner, those you you have to sort of search for separately on YouTube for some reason. And I don't really know why. So, all right. The first one is Cal and Rose in their suite when they're first arriving on the ship. And this is when Rose is unpacking all of the paintings. And there is a continuation of that scene into Rose's room where Trudy is helping Rose start to take her jacket off. And then, and she says, you know, she's excited about being on the ship, even as the maid. And she says, when I crawl between the sheets tonight. I'll still, I'll, I'll be the first person to crawl between these sheets. And then Cal comes back in this very like uh, <laughs> dark, but I guess he's trying to be seductive voice. And he says, when I crawl between the sheets tonight, I'll still be the first. And he gives this little motion to Trudy, the maid, to 
get out, aka he wants a private moment with Rose. And there is this, I mean, I don't love the scene because with all due respect, the acting from the actress playing Trudy is leaves a little bit to be desired. So that's a little distracting. But there is this moment between Cal and Rose that I wonder if it should have been left in because we see this interaction that insinuates that they have already been intimate, which if you listened to my Rose and feminism episode, my theory is very much that Rose is not a virgin, that Cal has you know, sort of staked his claim, not only with the engagement, but with demanding that he go to bed with her on some level. And 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 I talked a little, I think I talked in that episode about the historical accuracy of that. What a lot of people don't realize is that even in uh, this wealthy elite society, once an engagement was in place, it wasn't uncommon for those two people to already have sex. It it was still not considered the norm to discuss uh, <laughs> with people, but behind closed doors, there was this understanding that an engagement was almost as ironclad as a wedding certificate, and men often would have then expected uh, that sort of intimacy to follow. I mean, to be clear, I'm sure there were plenty of elite couples that uh, in the couple, both the man and the woman wanted to engage in sexual activity before the marriage with consent, you know, from both parties, probably sometimes with excitement from both parties. So I'm certainly not saying that every elite engagement would have included any coercion or anything like that. But I do think that this scene is definitely meant to communicate that Cal is expecting certain things from her and is, you know, throwing his power around a little bit, but also, and this gives us more insight into Cal, but also that he, not to redeem him in any way, but that he has really bought into where his power comes from. It comes from being a Harvard man, a wealthy man, a man who has entered an engagement with this younger, beautiful woman. And he does seem to be trying to bring her over to his side through a little bit of seduction, through a little bit of, you know, in this scene, he's kissing her on the neck and and becoming physical. We really get the sense that he actually buys into this on some level but also that he's wielding the power when that part is very unsettling. And the look on on Rose's face is very unsettling. And we see through Kate Winslet's acting in this scene what she's had to sacrifice and what being with this man means. And she's, you know, quite frankly, very disgusted almost by him touching her. So I feel like a, even a little remnant of the scene should have stayed in the film because it gives us a real sense of their interactions, which we don't get. Um, other than, you know, the breakfast scene is good for that. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely one where I, uh, I, I could see a, a few seconds of it helping the movie establish their relationship. There's also this scene where after one of the dinners before she's met Jack, she's goes back to her room, she's ripping off the jewelry, takes her hair down. And this is before she runs, obviously, back to the stern of the ship to think about jumping off. And and uh, Kate Winslet's acting is really wonderful in this chaotic scene. But that one I can see 
um, why James Cameron cut. I, I think it's why he cut it. I think it's very obvious uh, from everything else established in the film why she is running to the back of that ship. So then there's the scene where Cal is bringing the heart of the ocean into her stateroom. And there is an extension of that that gets us back to more time in the modern day storyline. And it's this really early CGI bad cut where you see Rose's hand go to the stone, and then it turns slowly into the older hand of Gloria Stewart. And it's her uh, putting her older hand on her throat and talking to Bill Paxton and the crew. Kind of glad that one's not in. Might have aged uh, poorly overall, that scene for sure. So then there's also this really awkward scene where Louis Abernathy is you know, in the crew of people listening with Bill Paxton, he's eating some chips really messily. And he's he's laughing at old Rose. And he's, he says, you were going to kill yourself by jumping off the Titanic. All you had to do was wait two days. And it's so insensitive and so random. And also for as much as I, I love Louis Abernathy and everything he represents in James Cameron's life and in the life of this movie, it's his acting can't carry a scene like that. So it's pretty funny. Uh, there's also in this modern day segment that we lost this uh, sense of, you know, budgetary concerns of Brock Lovett's mission, right, of Bill Paxton's character's mission. And his kind of right hand man is following him around the ship and saying, you know, the investors are about to pull the plug, the hands on the plug. And it really mimics what ended up going on in Jim Cameron's life towards the end of the production of this movie that he is trying to – I mean, I talked about it in my making of episodes, but you know, at the end of production, literally producers and finance men from uh, the studios are visiting set and saying, you've got to cut this scene, you've got to cut this scene, we're going to pull the plug, we're going to pull the plug, that kind of thing. So really ends up mimicking his own life in, in working to get this movie done – also, there is this insinuation of a romance between uh, Lizzie Calvert, Rose's granddaughter, and Bill Paxton, Brock Lovett. And it's, I can't even speak to that because it's too weird. Um, it's just strange to think that he might have, you know, been trying to layer this with yet another love story. So then that cuts to a scene in the movie that I'm really, really sad is not in there. It, it cuts to Rose the morning after she almost jumps, finding Jack in the third class uh, area, general room. And this is an amazing scene that should have stayed in because it shows third class more. You know, he built, James Cameron built this third class general room. And it's very accurate from my under my basic understandings of the architecture of the ship. So we would have gotten to see that more. And there's also this great chemistry between Kate and Leo in this scene. Rose walks down, this great light coming in from above. And it's the symbolism there is great, right? The upper the upper decks of the ship where the wealthier people are, there's more light and she's coming down into the darkness of the general room. But the general room has talking and card playing and there are families and children and you see what a mix and a meld of different types of people are there, which is obviously very accurate. Not extremely accurate. I don't think that Rose would have just walked in. I think, uh, as we've talked about before, the quarantine guidelines would have meant that she probably would have been confronted by a steward or by someone that works on the ship if seen headed in that direction. But now that I'm thinking about it more, I don't think completely out of the realm of possibility because I don't know that 
stewards would have been telling someone that wealthy um, no on anything. But the, but there is this great chemistry between Kate and Leo. Uh, Jack is like with a sketchbook hanging out with his friends. Fabrizio's got this burgeoning romance going on with Helga. Talk about that in a minute. And uh, she just appears and he is shocked and he looks like a puppy in love. And it it is a, a scene where it would have been a great establishing shot for Jack as a person because even though he is this very well, uh, very, I was about to say wealthy, not wealthy, but very worldly person has traveled and lived on his own and been without his parents for years, that he is nervous and honestly can't believe that this woman is giving him the time of day and and some great acting from Leo. It's a great little, um, he sort of slaps Fabrizio on the way, uh, on the way as he's walking away with Rose as sort of, uh, maybe that was a little too modern and why James Cameron cut it out, but a sort of like, hey, I told you, like she came to see me. So anyway, um, I think historically, this scene is uh, pretty, pretty, inaccurate overall because of the quarantining of the classes there wouldn't have been mixing officially but you know i think that i'm willing to give a little bit of leeway here like i said the more i think about it over the years so third class passengers definitely wouldn't have been able to just walk up to the first class areas 100% but i'm thinking perhaps there would be a world where if a if a first class passenger was saying hey this third class passenger is with me. We're going to take a walk. He's my guest. I don't know. But still, that breaks quarantine. So I don't know. What do you think? Let me know. So um, maybe we've assigned too much meaning, meaning uh, with all of this. And we just want to say, hey, James Cameron, this isn't possible. You made a mistake. And maybe there was a little bit more leeway to that. Um, there are, I can't remember the exact names, but there are a couple of incidents of uh, third and second, no, wouldn't have been second class passengers. I think I actually think it was one second class, but definitely a couple of mentions of third class passengers when they were being interviewed by the newspapers after the, the, the um, sinking, they claimed to have gone up to sneak around and look around first class while they were on the ship. Now, that could just be total bullshit. And, you know, the great ship has gone down. And how would anyone know whether they actually did that or not? So they just kind of want to say that to add some romance to their story post-sinking. But also, I don't know why anybody would take the time to lie about that in such a somber situation. So I don't know. But uh, there are a couple of incidents where uh, third-class passengers said they snuck and saw some of first-class. So long story short. Um, Come Josephine, in my flying machine, there's the the scene where we're introduced to the song and it gets cut. So we don't hear the song until they're on the bow in the flying scene. But there is this deleted scene where they're walking on deck after the dancing and drinking in third class. And they're just singing it as they walk, which is completely historically accurate because the song was published in 1910. Uh, it Actually, side note, um, just a little bit of, you know, um, names and dates, histories, um, originally recorded by a woman named Blanche Ring, and it was actually her signature song for a while. Also recorded by some people named Ada Jones and Billy Murray. Love that name. Uh, they did a duet in 1910, so it would have been in the cultural mind as a duet as well. And that was really, oh, I'm sorry, they recorded it in 1910. It would have been released in, in 1911. So 
that makes sense. And there were tons of subsequent recordings of it. Um, it was written, obviously, in the early days of flying and aviation. So it is a story of a young man sort of seducing and courting his girlfriend uh, with the flying machine um, metaphors. And, you know, some people think it was meant to represent kind of technological optimism. So in that sense, it's very historically accurate as a theme in this movie as well. A side note, again, I named, well, I gave my daughter the middle name Josephine, and it's uh, very much inspired by this. So, and uh, if you're a total Caden Leo person, and their chemistry is one of your favorite things about this movie, then you have to watch this deleted scene because the very end of it, there's the sh- a shooting star they're talking about. And Rose says, should we wish on it? And Jack gets kind of serious. And he says, why? What would you wish for? And it is this moment where he is sort of coming down from the high of the evening of dancing. And he's realized, I kind of maybe want some answers from this woman. She's spending a lot of time with me. She's giving me this hope. But what is actually going to come of this? And um, I don't know, their their eyes there as they connect is is really great. Then there's the cut gym scene, which I I think is another that uh, would have loved to see make it into the movie. There is uh, the gym instructor, Macaulay, who is a real person. And there's a photo of him in the gym on the Titanic, you should look up online, uh, walking Cal and Ruth and Rose on a tour with Thomas Andrews, played by Victor Garber, through the gym. And it's amazing. I mean, Cameron built this gym set, and we really only see it in the film one time when Rose comes back in there and, and Jack pulls her aside in the hat and the code. And there's a couple of deleted scenes uh, for the gym. But he built this set, incredibly accurate. The electric course and the electric camel were very real things, very odd things, but real. Um, The electric course was notoriously in the Calvin Coolidge White House. So there's a couple of articles online. If you're interested in the history of that, look it up. There's this line where Ruth is asked if she wants to learn the rowing machine, and she says, can't imagine a skill I could likely need less. Foreshadow. Some cheesy foreshadowing. Uh, And then talk about cheesy. There's an extended scene of Jack sneaking over the rails when he sneaks up to first class, uh, you know, on Sunday. And uh, Fabrizio and Tommy are with him. And Tommy's like, why are you doing this? This is not logical. And Fabrizio, you know, very much falling in line with our critique of that character as being a little bit too stereotypical uh, and a little bit of a character. Uh, He says, amore is not logical. So I love is not logical, you guys. But, you know, it's not. And I I have talked on record about how much I believe the love story in this movie is possible. So there you go. But here, one thing in this deleted scene, it's important to note, there is a sign on the set that says third class passengers not allowed beyond this point. So kind of speaking to what uh, I mentioned earlier, and I hadn't I hadn't noticed that sign before. But you know, we get onto Cameron for the whole like Jack would have never made it into first class thing. But here is proof that at least Cameron was thinking about it and about the logistics of that on some level. So there you go. And again, it's a movie. We're supposed to suspend disbelief, but those signs are there. He's got the sets uh, perfectly accurate, so he's aware of that. He's aware that his characters are defying some of these um, logistics. Then we get to the chase scene that is extended 
where Lovejoy is chasing them for the first time. So there is an extended hallway scene, which is another just kind of uh, Jack and Rose moment left on the editing room floor that if you are just a Jack and Rose person, it's really sweet. There is, um, speaking of David Warner and, and Lovejoy, he's not necessarily more in this scene, but we do get a little bit more of his backstory. So Rose talks about Lovejoy having been hired by Cal's dad to sort of be a babysitter for him. And, you know, that is the vibe we get. I was talking to Alexia from Titanic Talkline on an interview I did with her, and I, I posted that on my feed. We started to talk about some of these deleted scenes and Spicer Lovejoy. And that's what she said is, you know, the whole movie Lovejoy is definitely getting a giving a vibe of a babysitter that is done with his last assignment, ready for it to be over, ready to get home. And that is kind of the vibe. And with this backstory, Rose says, you know, Lovejoy's job was to make sure that Cal made it home when he was kind of crawling back from the, you know, disreputable parts of town, aka going to see prostitutes and going to gamble probably. So and Unfortunately, a lot of uh, historical accuracy to that with these elite white males at this time. So anyway, we get a little bit of backstory on him, but then there's this really cute scene where Jack is like, oh, it's kind of what we're doing right now. We're, you know, in the back out of the, <laughs> the service areas of Titanic or some sort of back alley that they're roaming around kissing in. So that's cute. Um, the boiler room, again, I don't know if they would have actually made it to the boiler room, but we're going to leave that. Uh, conversation for somebody else to figure out. But there is the stoker that talks to them, Fred Barrett. Um, and you, you know, you see his face. He's the only guy in the boiler room we get any real dialogue from. But what's interesting is that James Cameron, you know, chose to make him a real person, gave him the that actor a credit as Fred Barrett, the real person. His name was Frederick William Barrett. He was born in 1883 near Liverpool, and he was uh, on the Titanic, and he did survive the Titanic. He had been at sea quite a bit. He had been with the Cunard Line, and then he had moved over to the Allen Line, and then to the White Star Line, and he was a lead stoker working in Boiler Room six. And I encourage you to look him up. His story is readily available. He was on Lifeboat 13, one of you know the few men from down there to survive. So he's a real guy. You can also see him in the end of the movie when Cal's going down to the steerage section on the Carpathia. You can see him kind of standing, smoking a cigarette uh, down there with the survivors as well. He probably pops up a few other times in the movie. Then we move to a lot of the historical historically themed scenes that get cut. And I will say that in the second half of the movie, the majority of the scenes that get cut are these sort of side his, uh, side appearances by historical characters. And, uh, you know, you can look at it both ways. There's a sadness in these scenes being deleted and less representation of, you know, actual historical figures that were on the ship. But then you could also make the argument that the movie that came out as the final product is pretty much a perfect film. And Cameron was a great editor for himself and ultimately decided that his characters he had written were the ones that we needed to follow through the ship. And I completely agree with that, you know, as an, as a general feeling that we do have these scenes in the wireless room with Harold Bride and Jack Phillips. And it is completely accurate. This 
back and forth they're having where they're making fun of the private telegrams that the first class passengers are sending, you know, this guy wants his private train to meet him, la-di-da. This is real. They were Marconi employees. They were private employees of Marconi. Their primary job was not ice warnings and ship-to-ship communication. They did that, and it was a big part of this growing technology and safety movement among ships, but their primary job was sending these telegrams that people would pay to send. Um, So that is accurate. And then also the interaction they have with the wireless operator on the Californian in this scene where he says, oh, the idiot on the Californian is messaging me. And then they send out this message, which is we know was sent. We have Harold Bride's testimony. We have the actual wireless transmissions. But they say, keep out, shut up. I'm working Cape Race. Now, I will say There has been a lot of conversation lately among historians and scholars of this that if you put it into proper historical context, that all these wireless operators had a little bit of a shorthand with one another, and perhaps they were being sarcastic more than anything and not necessarily malicious, but I don't know that we'll ever know. So Cameron shoots these wireless room scenes. He also shoots some scenes on a ship that is supposed to be the Californian. And you see the wireless guy on the Californian shutting down his his set for the night. That really happened. And then you see him walking out on deck and seeing all of the ice. And that is real because the Californian stopped for the ice. But of course, there is this whole other side story of the Californian being the ship that so many people on Titanic see in the distance and don't understand why it's not coming to their rescue. It is the ship that doesn't come to their rescue. I did a book club episode on William Hazelgrove's book on this. There is so much to unpack. I will do an episode in the fall on the Californian, so won't go into all of that now, but this scene is incredibly accurate. So I suppose the reason if I had to get into Cameron's brain that he cut the wireless stuff would be though, that's just introducing a whole nother um, line of what ifs, a whole nother sort of theme of, of, uh, you know, the ship possibly being saved and it's not. And then uh, more themes and threads of who's culpable in the sinking. And he probably just didn't want to open all of that up would be my guess. There are, scenes of passengers playing with ice on the decks um, after the iceberg collision. This is real. There were a lot of people who claimed to have seen this going on. There is a Jack and Rose moment here where Rose puts a piece of ice down Jack's uh, shirts and they have this funny little interaction and and Jack says, that's it. You're going overboard. And he you know, acts like he's going to throw her over. And I mean, I see why Cameron cut it. It's like very Leo, not Jack. I mean, I don't know Leo. I wish I did. That's uh, the statement of my life. Uh, but from everything I understand about him, he's a total jokester. And there's just this look in his face where you can tell like, that's Leo in that scene. That's not Jack, at least in my opinion. It's probably why it got cut. Um, there is this interaction between Harold Lowe and uh, Bruce Ismay that there is that was cut that there is definitely some um, evidence to suggest is real um, based on the testimony from some officers and some witnesses in the U.S. Senate hearings. This scene where Ismay goes to the boats is upset, kind of acting like a madman, and and talking to Officer Lowe saying. Why aren't the boats being loaded? We have to load them. He's kind of stepping on, you know, the the toes of the officers that are are in charge of this scenario and and maybe just 
you know, very frenetically upset. And so there is some evidence uh, to support that interaction. Also, uh, a huge thing that was cut with in terms of the historical characters was the the Robert Hitchens and Molly Brown, Margaret Brown interaction in the lifeboat. And I am very sad that these were on the cutting room floor because Kathy Bates is fantastic in these scenes. Um, they're historically accurate from what I understand. Uh, Margaret Brown taking over rowing, um, encouraging the women to row, and Hitchens, you know, shouting at everybody to row. He's afraid of the suction, which I believe we know that he was. And Captain Smith calling for the boat, and this was boat six, to come back. Margaret Brown wants to go back. Hitchens does not. Again, there is Margaret Brown's testimony and testimony of others that support some of this. Although, to be clear, you know, Robert Hitchens has been villainized uh, in this tale. There's a long backstory there. He was the quartermaster. He was, you know, at the at the wheel when Titanic struck the iceberg. In the fall, I'm going to talk to Simon Medhurst, who is his great great grandson, I believe, and I want to talk to Simon about what you know Robert Hitchens' legacy is. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of of he said she said. I don't know that there's a lot of value to that in terms of what actually was said in that boat, but I think the value comes in how we talk about the memory of people and uh, why we have sort of villainized him in this story. I mean, some of it may be <laughs> deserved. Um, you know, based on Margaret Brown's testimony. There's also a great scene in the Titanic 20 years later documentary on Disney Plus where Muffet Brown, who's a Margaret Brown descendant, talks about this and and says, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what Margaret did. She got in that boat and she led the women and she did. And uh, not to, definitely not to support villainizing Robert Hitchens, but I think these scenes should have been left in. It really shows us more of Margaret's Uh, amazing, fascinating story. Also, the scene in the gym, again, a gem scene we lost, uh, J.J. Astor uh, using a little pocket knife to open up the lifeboats to show Madeline, his young wife, how the lifeboats were made. There is evidence from testimony to suggest that people saw him doing this, and it was a way to distract his young wife, who was very obviously um, nervous and panicked, which of course she was. There is Macaulay, the gym instructor, talking about not wearing a lifeboat because he's just going to swim. Um, He unfortunately did not make it in real life. Uh, There is Baker Charles Jockin putting back that whiskey in one deleted scene and throwing deck chairs frantically into the ocean. This was very, very real. We have evidence from Jockin's testimony. This is what he did. He was drinking alcohol throughout the night. That is probably what allowed him to survive in the water later on in the evening. And he did throw deck chairs out uh, as sort of a you know last-ditch Hope this will give people something to float on. And Thomas Andrews was seen doing that as well. There is a scene of Jack calling for a steward at a gate. Uh, He and Rose are taking whiskey from another passenger. They're sort of uh, joining together to try to move from third class back up to the decks. And he's calling for a steward saying, this gate is locked. Um, I did a whole bonus episode last month about the gate. So uh, if you listen to that, you know that there's a whole can of worms with this statement as well. Um, There are then the seeds where he's reunited and Rose is with him um, with Fabrizio and Helga and Tommy. And there's 
a whole Helga storyline that has been deleted from this movie. There is another world in which there's more time spent in third class and you get another or more of a sense of Jack kind of in his third class you know, gang of friends kind of thing. And that obviously ended up on the cutting room floor. There is this burgeoning relationship between Fabrizio and Helga. Ends up in a lot of the deleted scene. Uh, He's begging Helga to come with them, with him and Jack and Rose and Tommy to try to make a go of it, to get to the lifeboats. He's saying, it's my destiny to go to America. It's horrible. It's Mario and Luigi from... (laughs) Listen, I love Danny Nucci. I think he's iconic in this role as Fabrizio. I think he got a bad rap by having his entire, you know, uh, love story cut by Cameron. And then he ends up the stereotypical Italian accent guy and then getting killed by the funnel in the water. He becomes kind of a joke. And it's I I feel for him. But uh, it's I mean, some of these line readings are pretty fucking bad. Excuse my French. So he kisses Helga. They have this moment, but all of this is edited out of the movie. So if you watch the final cut of the movie, the only Helga you get is just a few fleeting glances. Fabrizio dances with her in third class, little third class, excuse me, just a little bit of flirtatiousness. And then she also is there at the end falling off the stern and Rose watches her fall off the stern at the end, which would have arguably played more powerfully if we'd had more of her backstory as an immigrant, but it's all gone. So there was this secondary love story. And I think I remember in an interview, James Cameron, no, it was an interview that Danny Nucci did on the, I watched the podcast, the one with Amy Nicholson and Paul Shear. Gosh, I can't remember it. I'm going to do some real time. Googling because this is a bonus episode and I can. Um, Unspooled. Great podcast. I don't know why I forgot the name of it. Their Titanic episode is splendid. I mean, better than what I could do. So <laughs> just like my my movie episodes pale in comparison to their one episode on it, just because their chemistry is is so good. Um, so Danny Nucci was on Unspooled. That's what it was. And he uh, remembered James Cameron giving him a call during the editing process and kind of saying, hey, Uh, a lot of your stories going uh, out of the movie and I'm going to sort of recraft it that you're just Jack's pal that gets on the ship and then you die obviously with the funnel um, hitting you but uh, his moment in the sun this uh, burgeoning romantic relationship with the immigrant Helga is cut out and is completely gone and I would argue good we didn't need that. It would have been too much Fabrizio and too much of that accent. Danny Nucci is not Italian. Um, a couple of more cutscenes that involved historical characters. There is one where Benjamin Guggenheim and J.J. Astor have a little bit of an interaction towards the end, sort of a shaking of hands and good luck to you. And J.J. mentions that he's off looking for Madeline's dog for her. And this is a real thing. Their dog who was named Kitty, which makes it confusing, was an Airedale Terrier, and she was on the ship. She would have been in the dog kennels with the other dogs under the responsibility of a man named John Hutchinson. It's unknown what her actual fate was in the sinking in terms of – I mean, obviously she drowned. The dog did, but we don't know if um, she had been let out of the kennels. There is a myth 
that JJ himself came down to release Kitty and then all the other dogs um, and let them roam free. We don't know. I don't I don't think. If you know more about this, please message me. I don't think we have confirmation on that, really, any evidence of that. Um, but the deleted scene in the movie does have JJ saying, oh, Madeline's got me looking for the dog. So some definitely some accuracy there as well. There is also, um, in terms of historically accurate characters, another scene with Bride and Phillips towards the end where Harold Bride is begging Jack Phillips, who's still at the set, at the Marconi set, um, you know, please, 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 uh, you know, get up. Let's have a chance at making it. He's putting a life jacket on Phillips. And uh, that, according to Harold Bride's testimony, is is how that scene played out. We'll talk about them more when I do a wireless episode. There's also the uh, Duff Gordons, uh, Lucille Lady Duff Gordon and Cosmo, Sir Cosmo Gordon. Uh, they are shown in their lifeboat, which was very empty. That is true. They got off in one of the first lifeboats and there weren't many people in it. I mean, devastatingly few people in it, just like 15, I think, in a, in a large lifeboat. And when they came to the hearings in Britain uh, after the sinking, Sir Cosmo was asked about hearing the cries of people and why they didn't row back to people in the water. And he didn't really have an answer. And this is notorious uh, scene in, in, in the hearings that actually happened. So there is a nod to that and to the Gordons in their lifeboat that was cut. There is also the death. This is not a historical character, but uh, there is the death of young Cora, who is the little girl that Jack becomes acquainted with, kind of becomes an uncle-like figure on the ship. And, you know, he says, you're still my best girl, Cora, in the dancing scene. Um, And her and her family are shown basically to drown in a cut scene. And think Cameron decided, and rightly so, that was a little too traumatic. Um, so I want to get to the two big things, which are the two biggest things cut from the film, which all involve fictional characters. First is this Spicer Lovejoy additional chase scene, which you may not know about. And if you don't, please immediately go watch it and then research a little bit about it. So this was in the movie till late in the game. When they did a screening at the Mall of America in 1997, a few months before the movie came out, this was still in the movie. This is five minutes of the movie that was eventually extracted at the last minute. So I talked to Alexi on Titanic Talkline about this, but it's a little out of character for Lovejoy. So basically in the cut part of the scene, Cal realizes that the heart of the ocean is in Rose's pocket. He turns to Lovejoy and he says, if you can go shoot them, if you can go murder them, essentially, I guess is what he's saying, or at least wound them and get them back for me, which let's not even try to unpack how horrific that is, then you can have the necklace. So he's basically telling Lovejoy, go do my bidding and you can have this necklace that's worth millions of dollars. Alexia and I talked about how that seemed a little out of character up until that point in the movie. Lovejoy seems very apathetic about his employer. He seems very apathetic about his job. Although, you know, he does go down to third class looking for Rose um, when his head pops in in the dancing sequence. So 
don't know. He's he's doing his job. He's he's not saying no to Cal in other parts of the movie. But prior to this scene, he definitely has the air of someone close to retirement who is very sick of following around this spoiled brat of an employer in Cal. And um, as we learned in another deleted scene from Rose, like I talked about, sort of has been hired by Cal's father as a babysitter, and he seems over it. But I suppose we're meant to believe that anybody, if given the opportunity to own something like the the heart of the ocean, uh, and if he were to survive the sinking, would have that much money. I guess that's the ultimate motivator we're meant to believe. And I, I guess uh, I think in this, it's either in the script or maybe I think it may be in the script, or maybe there's another deleted scene I missed when I rewatched. But I think I remember Cameron saying the backstory on him was he was an ex Pinkerton, and and Jack does say that in the delete deleted scene x cops i think lovejoy is a retired uh, policeman so anyway so there is this chase sequence where lovejoy basically says okay i'll do it and he chases jack and rose and jack and rose have to hide down behind uh dining chairs in the dining saloon and that means we if this had stayed in we would have had two lovejoy chasing them scenes i mean who's the bad guy of this movie right is it lovejoy or cow it's supposed to be Cal. So this is too much, which is probably ultimately why Cameron cut it. It does have some amazing shots of the dining room, though. And all of that is actually fucking flooding as they're shooting this scene. So they have the dining room. I talk about this in my uh, my episodes about the making of the movie, but they've got the dining room jacked up on these, uh, you know, machines. And so it can go up and down and all of the the dining, like all the serving ware, all of the napkins, all the linens, all the chairs, it's all real. They built all of that and it's actually flooding. And that is real movie making at its finest, you know, physical sets going through this process. So we do lose some of that. It's pretty amazing. There's also very obviously a body double in for Leo for most of the actual fighting of this scene. So Cal, um, I'm sorry, Lovejoy, does find them and Jack kind of surprises him from behind and there's a struggle. Very obviously a stunt double. So that probably influenced the ultimate decision as well. And then uh, Jack Dawson, you know, punches Lovejoy, gets his revenge and says, compliments of the Chippewa Falls Dawsons. And that is a throwback to uh, his interaction with J.J. Astor, where he says, uh, where Aster says, are you of the Boston Dawsons? And and Jack is kind of fumbling and says, no, the Chippewa Falls Dawson. So anyway, you know, not great acting from anybody in that scene and awkward stunt doubles, obvious. I think Cameron said that after the screening of the movie at the Mall of America, a lot of the comic cards mentioned that scene as being unnecessary especially since you know, the ship is already sinking. So you don't necessarily need more uh, suspense. There's also, there's already the ultimate, uh, you know, the ultimate uh, the death looming for all characters involved. The ship is bloody sinking, as they would have said back then. So there you go. Um, let's see. And then the other big one is the alternate ending with the heart of the ocean, another one that's just like a huge chunk of the movie that got taken out. It's like three or four minutes, maybe longer. Go watch it. I can't do it justice. It is, as you've probably read online, just absolutely ridiculous. It is Rose being caught by Brock Lovett and her granddaughter Lizzie throwing the heart of the ocean into the water instead of quietly doing it on her own. 
Louis Abernathy is there, like running after it, even after she's dropped it in the water. He says, that really sucks, lady. And good God, I mean, thank goodness James Cameron had editors and was his own editor, listened to his other editors, because this is this is so bad. And there's a maniacal Bill Paxton as Brock Lovett, just like laughing because the heart of the ocean is gone. There are these more weird moments between him and Lizzie, the granddaughter, that sort of that sort of hints at a romance. He says, do you want to dance? What music is there? There's no, it's this this awkward scene where an old woman is thrown a jewel off the side of a ship and then you're going to ask somebody if they want to dance. And I get what he was originally going for. You know, this idea that Rose at her age and about to die and dropping the heart of the ocean into the water symbolically, she also sees her granddaughter who's still fairly young, maybe embarking on a new romance and, and romance being reborn in this exact same spot. But I, it's just too much. I can't, I can't get behind it. It's absolutely terrible. And when you think about the ending that Cameron settles on, which is perfect, then it, it, it makes it all seem even worse. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately, I wonder why some of these things were cut, some of the scenes with the historical characters, I wonder. But then again, you know, you can't argue with the final product. And the Jack and Rose that he leaves in is the Jack and Rose that we know. So who knows, maybe even some of these other sweet scenes. Oh my God, and I forgot to mention, everyone's gonna be so mad at me if they're like a a pure Jack and Rose person, the boiler room kiss. I forgot to mention this because it doesn't have any historical moments. But there is this cut kiss where right after they come down into the boiler room and they run across and Jack shouting, you know, keep up the good work. He pulls her back into like the smoky fog haziness of the boiler room and they have a very passionate kiss, much more detailed, physical, passionate is the right word kiss than we see them ever have in the rest of the movie. And my only thought about why Cameron ultimately cut it is that Jack is very um, kind of aggressive in a good way in that scene. He's definitely initiating the kiss the kiss in that scene. And he's like kissing her neck. He's kind of pulling on her, uh, her jaw and her mouth in a very romantic way, but he is being very purposeful and initiating. And I think, you know, in the end, uh, Cameron really wanted to communicate that Rose was the one initiating a lot of the physical aspects of their relationship. And it was so much about consent and her asking him to, you know, in the car to be physical with her. So I I don't know, maybe that's why. But then again, it's like these two people we're supposed to believe have fallen so passionately in love with one another that they would, you know, that she would jump back on a sinking ship at some point to save this man that she's only known for a couple of days. I if that's what we're supposed to believe, then I think a kiss like that and the chemistry that Kate and Leo have should have been left in. I mean, it's glorious. If you, I mean, it is a scene that probably birthed a thousand fan fictions online. It's, <laughs> it's really sexy. And I'm sad it's not in the movie. I, of all the scenes, I would, I would put that if, if we could get a new cut of the movie and just add one scene, that's the one I would add. Just go on YouTube and search Boiler Room Kiss and you'll see a lot of hits for that one. Um, it's really great. But you know, the but like I was saying, the the Rose and Jack that he leaves in the movie, that's the Rose and Jack we know. So I think in many ways it's perfect. And you could argue he made all the right decisions. He ultimately made 
the right decision about all the present day scenes. In the final cut, we have just enough of them. We have just enough to frame the story. And I think he was smart to cut the ones that he did. So anyway, I I know this is rambling. I'm sorry. I, uh, I'm on the eve of uh, travel. And so I'm, I've been packing and my house is a mess and my kids are frenetic and it's been a fun summer, but it's been crazy and it's about to get crazier. And I'll explain uh, why soon. Lots of fun stuff with the podcast coming up. But yeah, I'm sorry if it's been me a little bit all over the place, but I wanted to make sure that the bonus episode posted on time. And I also think it was just kind of fun to talk about the movie. You know, I love doing that. So uh, send me a message or a comment if you have anything to say. I will be a little hard to get in touch with over the next few weeks uh, because of travel and family stuff. But I always prioritize Patreon because I do I do know you guys are, are paying to be here. And part of that you know, a sort of um, extra experience is is me being a little bit easier to get in touch with. So definitely always prioritize Patreon messages. So let me know if you have any concerns, comments. Have a great rest of your summer. I'll see you back here at the end of August for a bonus episode. And I'll see you on the main feed for some announcements. Um, maybe some early announcements here for some stuff in the fall coming soon. So make sure to watch this space. And yeah, can't thank you enough. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for being here. A lot of y'all have been here since day one. When I did my first bonus episode, I realized I was recording an episode for, I think I had four patrons when I did my first bonus episode. And um, you guys have multiplied and it's exciting and wonderful. So thank you. And I'll talk soon. Bye.